Morning. Morning. Stick out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, this is it. The, the end has come. Uh, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to finish our journey through the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, last week, right, all the way back in 2023, uh, we covered the first 17 verses of chapter 24. And so today we come back to finish the rest of the chapter and the book. And so let's start by just reading the text. Uh, I will read the chapter in its entirety so that we might be reminded of the full story. Second uh, Samuel chapter 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent the pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. 
And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now, remember the key theme from last week's passage, that of God's mercy. That's what David brings special attention to. You remember verse 14. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. And so when he's given a seemingly impossible choice between three different judgments— David chooses the one that makes Israel most directly dependent on God's mercy, as opposed to falling into the hand of man. So three days of pestilence it is. The pestilence begins wreaking havoc, right? 70,000 Israelites are dead already. And it's as the angel comes to the city of Jerusalem, David's city, and he stretches out his hand to destroy it, that God stays the judgment It is enough. Now stay your hand. And so yes, 70,000 Israelites are dead, showing the holiness of God in his judgment, how his anger rightly burns against sin, but countless others are spared. And so God displays exactly what David was hoping for, his mercy, his abounding mercy. Israel deserved far greater destruction But Israel doesn't get what they deserve because God, in mercy, stops the judgment. Now, if the book of 2 Samuel ended right there with last week's passage, with God mercifully stopping the judgment that the people deserved, with David crying out for mercy and God graciously responding by bringing the plague to an end, that would have been a, a marvelous picture of God's mercy upon his people to finish the book. And we would rightly walk away from such a text saying, wow, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. Mercy there was great. But the story's not quite done yet. Because there's that seemingly meaningless uh, little detail and. Verse 16, one that we completely skipped over last week, where it says that the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Right? So basically, the angel of the Lord is about to destroy Jerusalem. God stays his hand, and well, the angel happened to be 
by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Now, on first read, you just read verse 16, and it seems like an inconsequential little detail. There's a lot of locations and cities and geographical markers that are given in the Bible that are just there as historical fact. They're background information, no additional significance. So at first glance, the location marker of the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, well, it seems to be exactly that. But then, look at verse 18. Look at what happens at that very spot. The prophet Gad, and you remember him from last week, the prophet Gad comes up to David and tells him to build an altar to the Lord there, by the very spot that the angel was when the pestilence stopped on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Now, a threshing floor, I'm guessing that None of us have ever seen a threshing floor, and so let me try to explain what it is. A threshing floor would have been a large, open, flat space, and Manhattan people's like, what is that? But it would have been typically located on top of a hill, and it was where grain farmers would do the work of separating the grain, which is what they want to keep, from the chaff, things like straw and stalks and husks that they don't want. And so they'd have some oxen pull some heavy wooden sleds over the grain to tread the grain, uh, to dislodge the the wheat from the chaff. And then they'd throw all of it up into a strong wind, and the grain, which is heavier, would fall down, and the, the chaff, which is lighter, would blow away in the wind. You do that enough times, and now you have the grain that you want. So that's a threshing floor, This particular threshing floor in the area of Jerusalem, which is where David was when the judgment stopped, it happened to belong to a guy named Arana, the Jebusite. That kind of makes sense if you think about it, because you'll remember back in chapter 5, David and his army, his men, they took Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And so Arana is likely a remnant of those Jebusites. Uh, one who is living as a conquered subject of David's kingdom. And so picture this. One day, Arana's just kind of doing his thing. He's threshing wheat and all that kind of stuff at his threshing floor. Who's that rolling up? It's David and his squad. Why has my lord the king come to his servant? Arana's got his face to the ground. He, he's paying homage. The text doesn't say anything about his emotions, but generally speaking, right, when the king and some government folks just show up unannounced, generally not a good thing. Like, am I in trouble? Did I underreport my wheat taxes or something? Like, why is he here? David calms his fears. I'm here to buy your threshing floor. Now look at Arana's response, verse 22. It basically says, you can have it. Take the threshing floor. And here, you can even have my oxen to use for the burnt offering. And why would we stop there? Just take the yoke of the oxen. Uh, Take the threshing sleds. Take all of that as wood to start your fire. Like, whatever you need, David. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. But now David's response. Because remember, this isn't just some random 
real estate purchase, like David setting up some rental properties or something. He is buying this land with a very specific purpose, to build an altar to the Lord. And if it's for the Lord, if this is about making sacrifices to the Lord, well, then it's fitting that it should cost David something. No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. In reality, a little silver or gold is nothing for David. He is the richest man in the kingdom. But the principle is still valid. That our offerings to God should cost us something. And thus allow us to show that God is worthy. And so whether it's our money or our stuff or our time or our energy, God has graciously given us those things that we might, through our stewardship and sacrificial giving of those things for his sake, that we might show him to be of ultimate value. And so with that principle in mind, David buys the threshing floor, he pays fair market value to Orana. Then he builds an altar there and he offers burnt offerings, he offers peace offerings on that altar to God. And the chapter, and the entire book for that matter, it ends by telling us that the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So that's our story, and for that matter, that's our book. That is the end of the books of Samuel. But then we have to ask, why? Why include this little story here at the end? Uh, to end not only this narrative, to end not only this chapter, but to end the entirety of the books of Samuel. Like, why finish with this? At least at first glance, this passage seems like a rather unspectacular way to finish the book. Like after all that we've been through in this book, all the ups and downs, all the promise and the failures, all the sadness and destruction of sin, wouldn't it be more fitting for the author to finish with some hope? Why end with some real estate negotiations and, and a deed transfer? But see, this is where we are helped by the fact that we have studied this book for so many weeks. Because by this point, I think we know the narrator well enough to know that he doesn't waste ink or parchment. Like we almost instinctively suspect that there is more to the story than just something that you would see on HGTV. Those intuitions would be correct. This is more than just a real estate transaction. This is more than just a deed transfer. Like once we see what's going on here, we would be hard-pressed to think about how this narrative, this chapter, this book could have ended on a more hope-filled note than it does. 
It's true, Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in former days was written so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's true of all the scriptures, but this ending especially so. There is much hope to be had here. And so let's look at the text again. Let's think about three ways in which this specific ending, how this ending directs God's people, that's me and that's you, as we finish this book, how this ending directs God's people to hope. First, I want you to see that this ending directs God's people to hope in God's faithfulness. This ending directs God's people to hope in God's faithfulness. To see that, we're going to have to rewind some 400 years or so back to the days of Moses. Moses, of course, he led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, to bring God's people to the promised land. But you know that that journey was certainly not without some hiccups. Uh, The people had to wander an extra 40 years because of their sin and rebellion against God. But the book of Deuteronomy picks up with the next generation now about to enter the promised land. And this is what God promises them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then... To the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Now that place that the Lord your God will choose to make his presence especially known amongst his people, that place was for a season, the tabernacle. But remember what happened to the tabernacle back in the book of 1 Samuel. The tabernacle at Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines. And you remember the Philistines even took the Ark of the Covenant for a season. And even when it came back, tabernacle worship was literally all over the place. And the Ark of the Covenant, it was uh, sitting in some guy's house in Kiriath-Jerim for about 20 years. David eventually brings that into Jerusalem. But the tabernacle itself, this entire time, and the altar of burnt offering, they were at Gibeon. And so pretty much throughout the entire reign of David, there was no centralized place of worship. There was no special location of God's presence the place that the Lord your God will choose. That's why David wants to build a temple. That's why he wants to build a house for the Lord. A temple that God tells David that his son Solomon would be allowed to build. But here's the question. Where? Where would the house of the Lord be built? If you've read the Old Testament, then you will know that God gives his people very specific instructions on how to worship him. 
Like if David didn't already know that, then he certainly learned the lesson when Uzzah was struck dead in transporting the ark. You remember that story? So David knows. David knows that they can't just willy-nilly decide where Solomon is going to build the temple. No, it's got to be, Deuteronomy 12, the place that the Lord your God will choose. And so David is wrestling with this question. We see that in Psalm 132. The psalm quotes David as saying, I will not enter my house or get in my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And so David is wrestling with this question. Where is the temple going to be built? And faithful Israelites, they've been wondering for generations, where is this location where God is going to be worshipped, the place that God promised to dwell with us in a special way? And the answer is in 2 Samuel 24. It's right here on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles is helpful here because it tells us in 1 Chronicles 21-26 that when David makes the sacrifice on the threshing floor, God answers David's offering on that altar by consuming it with fire, signaling his acceptance of the offering. So now look at what David says as a result in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1. Then David said, Here, here shall be the house of the Lord God, And here, the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Here, on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, this is where the house of the Lord is going to be built. And so that's exactly where Solomon later builds the temple, 2 Chronicles 3.1, when Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, And if Mount Moriah sounds similar, it's because that's where Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac. And a ram was sent instead for the burnt offering. And so how fitting is it that this should be the place of temple sacrifices? But that's a side point, right? The main point, right, the main point, continuing to read from the verse, is that this is also where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, that's Arana's Hebrew name, Ornan the Jebusite. The threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So, let's put this all together, right? This entire chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24, God's anger is burning against Israel. David sins in conducting this census. Because of all of that sin, God is going to bring judgment But in his mercy, he stays the judgment. The pestilence stops. And he makes it to stop at a specific location, the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And then God directs David to make an altar to him right there. He sends fire from heaven on the sacrifices there. And David correctly understands that to mean that the temple should be built there. And that's exactly where Solomon builds the temple. There, on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And so do you see this? Through Israel's sin, through David's sin, 
Uh, Through God's righteous judgment on that sin, like through all of the, the sin and the darkness of this chapter, God's faithfulness once again shines forth as he superintends all of that to fulfill his centuries old promise from Deuteronomy to give his people a place whereby they would know his presence. The place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. That place is going to be the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Isn't that kind of just mind-blowing, sovereign orchestration of all things, even sin, that he might show himself faithful to all of his promises? Isn't that the kind of thing that leaves us saying with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And so first, this ending directs God's people to hope in God's faithfulness. Second, I want you to see that this ending directs God's people to hope in God's propitiation. Propitiation, it's a a fancy word, refers to the turning away of God's anger against sin, the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. And so if we're going to understand propitiation, well, first we need to understand God's anger and wrath against sin. God's wrath might not be the most popular thing to talk about, but there is no denying that it is all over the Bible. God is a holy God, one who in his holiness and righteousness and justice must punish sin. And the ultimate judgment against sin in this life is death. The wages of sin is death. Those who practice such things deserve to die. The soul that sins shall surely die. So as a result of her sin, Israel deserves to die. Certainly many of them did. 70,000 of them have already been wiped out by pestilence. Israel deserves to die. And as a result of his sin, King David deserves to die. Doesn't matter that he's the king, God's anointed, the soul that sins shall surely die. And so David deserves to die. God's people deserve to die for their sin But, point number two, God graciously gives his people the hope of propitiation. Because God, in his mercy and kindness and forbearance, he gave the Israelites a means by which they could make propitiation. A means by which they might turn away his anger against their sin. And I'm referring, of course, to animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifices that would atone for sin, where the animal being offered would die in the place of the person offering the animal. Die in the place of the person who deserves to die. As a substitute for the person who deserves to die. We see propitiation all over our passage. Because propitiation is why God tells David to go to the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. It's to build an altar there, 
to make animal sacrifices there that the wrath of God against sin might be satisfied. That's why David says in verse 21 that he came to buy the threshing floor from you in order to, for the reason of, for the purpose of, building an altar to the Lord so that the plague may be averted from the people. And so the judgment was paused in verse 16. Right when God tells the angel, stay your hand. It's like a pause button. But it's only after David makes the sacrifices that verse 25 tells us, the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. It's only after the propitiatory sacrifices were made on the threshing floor of Iran of the Jebusite that the judgment was fully averted. But the theme of propitiation goes further, right? at least on the threshing floor of Arana, than just David's sacrifices here, because you remember what will soon after be built on that exact same spot. The temple and its altar of burnt offering. Because remember, the temple, the place that the Lord your God will choose, uh, that's more than just God's special presence among his people It's also the place where God's people would offer their burnt offerings and sacrifices to atone for their sin, to propitiate God's wrath. And so for hundreds of years, sacrifices of propitiation to atone for sin, hundreds of years, sin offerings would be made on that very altar, in that very temple, built on the very spot of Arana, the Jebusite's threshing floor, where God directs David to go in 2 Samuel 24. So again, think about this. How great is God's mercy? How ironic is God's mercy that in a chapter in which David and Israel commit so much sin, David and Israel are given a place where such sin would be atoned for for generations to come. And that, brothers and sisters, is the hope of all of God's people. A propitiation. Because the God with whom we deal is not some domesticated idol of our imagination. He is a fearsome God. His fearsome God whose anger burns against sin. And so the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Like it should be terrifying for each of us to think about the sins that we've committed. How we're guilty before a holy God. How our sins deserve punishment. How our sin merits death. And not just physical death, but even worse, an eternal death in hell where the wrath of God is poured out against sinners for eternity. That is a terrifying thought. But our hope is in knowing that our God is a merciful God. One who provides his people with a means to propitiation. One who, even as the offended party, initiates reconciliation and peace with his sinful people. After all, in this chapter, it's not David who discovered the threshing floor of Arana. Oh, this is a great spot. It's God who directs him there. Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. That, brothers and sisters, 
is the merciful God with whom we deal. So, so far we've seen that this ending directs God's people to hope in God's faithfulness, and particularly his faithfulness to dwell amongst his people, to make his presence known in the place that the Lord your God will choose, just like he promised. The threshing floor of Arana would be the exact site where Solomon would build the temple. And this ending directs God's people to hope in God's propitiation. Because even as David is directed to make sacrificial offerings here on the threshing floor of Arana, so the temple that would be built on that exact site would be the place where propitiatory sacrifices and offerings would be made for hundreds and hundreds of years to come for God's people. But, brothers and sisters, if that is all that this chapter points to, well, what hope is there for us? Because that temple, that temple that was built on the land of Arana the Jebusite, well, first it was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then, even after Ezra comes and he uh, rebuilds it, well, it was destroyed for good in AD 70 by Titus and the Romans. And today, you know what the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite is? Since AD 691, it's been occupied by the Dome of the Rock, at a Muslim shrine. And so again, what hope is there for us in that? Well, that brings us to the third hope, our only ultimate hope. It is the hope that brings together every other hope. This ending directs God's people to hope in God's Son. One last time, I can't help myself but one last time, we are once again reminded of how the book of 2 Samuel testifies to Jesus. Because if our hope is, point number one, God's faithfulness, like his faithfulness in dwelling amongst his people, well, that hope is fulfilled in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God literally dwelling amongst his people. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Like the temple that Solomon built on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite, that was going to be destroyed. And the temple that Ezra and Herod rebuilt, that's going to be destroyed. But then along comes Jesus. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up speaking about the temple of his body, that he might be the fulfillment of the temple. Emmanuel, God with us, the promise of God's presence with his people forever, that is fulfilled in Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? the union with Christ that all of God's people have in him. And so yes, point number one, God is faithful. We are reminded of that very fact in this chapter, but we're also reminded that that promise and all of the promises of God, well, they find their yes in him. And so it's through God's Son that we can hope in God's faithfulness. 
And second, well, if our hope is God's propitiation, I think you can see that that hope too is fulfilled in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Because here in this chapter, David shows us the principle of propitiation. He makes those animal sacrifices to avert the wrath of God, the judgment of pestilence, to turn that away. And it's on that same spot, again, the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, that God's people, for generations afterwards, would demonstrate the principle of propitiation. As they made animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice for their many, many, many sins. But there's only one problem with all of that. And it's a problem that the book of Hebrews points out to us. Hebrews 10, verse 4. It is impossible. Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, God gave the Israelites a place where they could shed the blood of bulls and goats for their sin. But that alone... Animal sacrifices in and of themselves? Such sacrifices could never be enough to atone for the sins of man. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only man can atone for the sins of man. And so you see how 2 Samuel 24, David's sacrifice, and the Solomonic temple, and the entirety of the Old Testament sacrificial system, how all of it points to the need for a greater sacrifice. That the wrath of God might be propitiated. And that greater sacrifice, of course, would come in Jesus. Fully God, and yet fully man. Remember that only man can atone for the sins of man. He takes on human flesh. He lives the perfect life that you and I and David and any of God's people never could. He never once sins. He's always in perfect submission to the Father's will. And this Jesus, God's Son, would give himself up as a sacrifice for sin. Not too far from where Arana the Jebusite's threshing floor was located right outside the city of Jerusalem, in the shadow of the temple, was a hill called Calvary. And there Jesus took upon himself all of the sins of all of his people. And on that cross, he suffers the full wrath of God that sinners like you and I deserve as our substitute in our place. Just like those animal sacrifices that were given on the spot of the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite for centuries, but this was not the blood of bulls and goats, powerless to take away sin. This was the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, for many generations, while God's people were making animal sacrifices— Romans 3 tells us that God in divine forbearance had passed over former sins. Like he allowed them to be covered with animal sacrifices, but that's because the ultimate atonement for those sins and all of the sins of all of God's people would come through Jesus Christ. 
And so what the priest could never accomplish through thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Propitiation. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And to prove that that propitiatory sacrifice was accepted, well, he said it himself. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He rose again from the dead. And today he stands to be your savior if you would place your trust in him. And so it is through God's Son that we can hope in God's propitiation. And so I hope you see that this ending, the ending to this story, the ending to this chapter, the ending to this book, it's more than just a real estate transaction. It's an ending that leaves us with so much hope. Hope in God's faithfulness. As we see him use even the sin and judgment of this chapter to fulfill his promise to dwell amongst his people. Hope in God's propitiation. As we see him graciously lead David to not only the spot where he could make propitiatory sacrifices, but the spot where Israelites for generations would make propitiatory sacrifices. And ultimately, hope in God's Son. The ultimate fulfillment of God's presence amongst his people, the temple. And the ultimate propitiation for our sins. The one to whom every animal sacrifice points. I told you, we would be hard-pressed to think about how this narrative, this chapter, this book, could have ended on a more hope-filled note than it does. So friends... That finishes our journey through First and Second Samuel. But as my old pastor used to say, the most important thing isn't that we'd get through this book, it's that this book would get through to us. And so I'll finish by asking, have the books of First and Second Samuel gotten through to you? Have you seen... That for all his greatness, a man after God's own heart, even God's anointed king is much too flawed to be our ultimate hope. Have you seen that for all its glory, that the kingdom of David is still light years away from the rest that God has promised his people? Have you seen that for all that he accomplished, there simply is no salvation in David. Because if you've seen that, and then in those shortcomings, and in those defeats, and in those failures, you've seen that to which this entire book is pointing, these are they which testify of me. If you've seen the son of David, if you've seen Jesus, and if as a result of our time in this book, you hope in Jesus more. And if as a result of our time in this book, you trust Jesus more, 
And if as a result of our time in this book, you love Jesus more, well, then I'd say the books of First and Second Samuel have gotten through to you quite well. Let's pray. Father, how we love your word. We thank you for the time that our church was able to spend in these wonderful books of Samuel. Father, we pray that when indeed these books would have gotten through to us, that we we would see uh, your servant David, uh, that we would know about all that he did, but ultimately that we would hope and trust and love your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.